Thank you, Sarah and Mary, for giving me the opportunity to speak about the Battle of Bennington at your virtual tavern. Thanks, everybody, for zooming in. Let me begin by taking you back to the summer of 1777, when it seemed that British General John Burgoyne's 8,000-man invasion army from Canada could not be stopped. Burgoyne had swept by Fort Ticonderoga, the bulwark of the North, so-called, abandoned by the Americans without a fight in early July. Here's what General Philip Schuyler wrote to George Washington on July 7th from his post at Stillwater above Albany. My prospect of preventing them from penetrating is not much. They have an army flushed with victory, plentifully provided with provisions, cannon, and every warlike store. Our army, if it should once more collect, is weak in numbers, dispirited, naked in a manner, destitute of provisions without camp equipage, with little ammunition and not a single piece of cannon. Washington sent what little aid he could, but he saw things differently, if not clairvoyantly. On July 22nd, he wrote to Schuyler, I trust General Burgoyne's army will sooner or later meet with an effectual check and that the success he has had will precipitate his ruin. From your accounts, he appears to be pursuing that line of conduct which of all others is most favorable to us. I mean acting in detachment. This conduct will certainly give room for enterprise on our part and expose his parties to great hazard. Could we be so happy as to cut one of them off, supposing it should not exceed four, five, or six hundred men, it would inspirit the people and do away with most of their present anxiety. In such an event, they would lose sight of past misfortunes and, urged at the same time by regard for their own security, they would fly to arms and afford every aid in their power. That, of course, is exactly what happened at, or rather near, Bennington less than a month later, and not to one, but to two British detachments of more than 600 men apiece at the hands of militia from New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Vermont, and a few from New York, and a small continental regiment. And the people did fly to arms and force Burgoyne's surrender at Saratoga in October, changing the course of the war. We look at the past through the lens of the present. The town of Bennington, Vermont has a population of about 9,000. It's 95% white, 1% black. Yet, in 2014, Bennington elected a black community activist named Kaya Morris, born and raised in Chicago, to a seat in the Vermont House, and re-elected her in 2016. During the run-up to the 2018 election, however, Morris announced that she was resigning her seat, citing racial harassment on social media and threats to herself and her family by a white supremacist, originally from Queens, who had also settled here. An investigation by the Vermont Attorney General determined that although there had been verbal abuse, no laws had been broken. The whole situation brought on some soul searching in what is the second whitest state in the nation. While this was going on, historian Lion Miles of Stockbridge mentioned to me that a black man had been killed at the Battle of Bennington as a member of Colonel Seth Warner's Continental Regiment known as the Green Mountain Boys. The Green Mountain Boys and the Battle of Bennington loom large in Vermont's historical identity and uh, as most Vermonters conceive it. I had never heard of 
or looked for black participation in the battle. But I th thought with Mr. Miles's help, this would be a good time to investigate. Of course, it's not easy. 18th century African-Americans left behind few family Bibles or church records or property deeds or gravestones or other memorials, or even in a few cases, their names, as these town records from the Berkshires attest. And now Sarah, you can begin the slideshow, please. There we are. Great, thanks. Military records have more to tell. The two principal kinds of Revolutionary War sources help document the services of African Americans. One is the muster rolls, the other the pension files from 1818 and 1832 and even later years. Blacks had the same rights to pensions that white veterans had and some of them or their widows applied for and were granted pensions. I'm going to show you material from two pension files. Here is a page from the file of Pompey Woodward, who was 70 years old in 1832 when he made his declaration of service. Next, please. As you can see, he had a lot to say. In the fair hand of the clerk, he recalls in brisk detail enlisting at Crown Point on Lake Champlain in 1776 under Benedict Arnold when he was 14 years old. He says he was born in Shrewsbury, Mass, and had been living in the town of Bridport in the Hampshire Grants, later Vermont. He recounts being inoculated against smallpox, recovering, then serving as an aide to a supply officer and help, helping fortify Ticonderoga. Following the evacuation of the fort, Woodward records being in the advance at the Battle of Hubberton, Vermont in which the Americans under Colonel Warner were forced from the field when German reinforcements arrived to support the British troops. You recall that the British strategy was to cut rebellious New England off from the other colonies by controlling the waterways from New York City to Montreal. Burgoyne had conceived the idea himself. His army was only half British, with the rest consisting of 4,000 troops hired from various German dukes and princes, along with some Canadians, loyalists, and more than 500 native warriors. Here's a map of the campaign from Champlain South. After Hubberton, Pompey Woodward retreated with the Northern Army to Castleton, and a month later he was at Bennington at the time of the battle, although evidently he did not fight in it. He reports that he saw the British prisoners, 700 of them, brought in, and serving as a guard, that he witnessed a disturbance as panicked German captives tried to break out of the overcrowded meeting house, and some were shot dead. Woodward remained at Bennington for two months until Burgoyne surrendered. When the officer to whom he was assigned was captured in a skirmish, he left the army altogether. Later living in Sterling, Mass. and Sullivan, New Hampshire, he was awarded a pension. So was his widow, his second wife, in 1853. We know that Pompey Woodward was black through a reference in the file that he was a colored man. According to an early history of the town of Sullivan, he became a farmer and died a respectable Negro. And in the same source, we read that his wife insisted on their having a respectable pew in the new church, which she obtained. 
in Pompey Woodward, we have one black life caught, caught up in the revolution and the aftermath of the Battle of Bennington, and one veteran able to enjoy in some measure the fruit of the Patriot victory. I say in some measure because we know that the United States retreated at the Constitutional Convention and in subsequent de decades from the vision of human equality it had appeared to embrace in 1776. Now for the second file. The deponent is Daniel Brown, a former militia captain from Lanesboro, Massachusetts in the Northern Berkshires. He was 90 years old when he made a statement in support of the pension application of Lucy Angel, widow of Abiathar Angel, a former captain in Warner's regiment. Captain Brown knew Abiathar Angel quite well. They both lived in the vicinity of the future town of Cheshire, Massachusetts, about 30 miles south of Bennington. Brown deposes that he attended Angel's wedding in the summer of 1777 in New Providence, as one of the new settlements in the Northern Berkshires was then called. And let's have a map, please. You're looking at the northwest corner of Massachusetts. There's Williamstown in the upper right, for instance. Let's get a closer look. Next slide. Brown also testified about Captain Angel's recruiting activities in 1777. Here's the relevant portion of his de deposition. Next one. It's a little hard to read. Lyon Miles had the scholarly zeal to decipher it. I'm going to enhance that image for you to make it a little easier. That's much clearer. Or not. Brown said that Angel was a recruiting captain until into the year 1777 at or near the time of Bennington battle. I remember after the battle of Bennington seeing a black man on the ground that was mortally wounded. This black man was enlisted by Captain Angel. When Brown saw the dying man, he realized that he knew him, although he doesn't recall his name and perhaps never knew it. What we get from the deposition is a strong visual memory of the fallen black soldier, a memory that had stayed in Brown's mind for 60 years before emerging as anecdotal proof of Angel's service in the war. Here is a muster roll for Captain Angel's company dated June 14, 1777. Let's uh, zoom in. Next one, please. The name of Sippo Ives appears on this roll. His death is recorded on this return from 1780. Next one. And a detail, please. Next slide. Five men are listed as having been recruited from New Providence, but only one of them, Private Sip Ives, is named as having been killed at Bennington Battle. He was one among roughly 30 patriots who died at the battle. And here's a final pay record for Sip Ives' term of service, dated 1780. None of the 100 or perhaps 130 other men that Warner led into battle on August 16th was reported killed. So I think we can say without a doubt that Sip Ives was the mortally wounded black man seen by Daniel Brown, and who was marked as having died on August 17th, the day after the battle. Even without Brown's testimony, we could have surmised that Sip Ives was black, 
as the DAR did in its 2008 listing of African-American patriots of the revolution. Sip's first name gives him away, as did Pompey Woodward's. Sip or Sippo is from Scipio, that is Scipio Africanus, the Roman general who defeated Hannibal in North Africa in the third century BCE. It was a common black name in the 18th century, along with those of other Roman leaders, such as Caesar and Pompey and Cato. The name Sip has a later history too, and even shows up slightly altered, if I'm not mistaken, as the first syllable in Walt Disney's zippity doo which is based on an old minstrel song. As for the surname Ives, it's an old French and English name. Sip Ives or his New World forebears must have taken or been given the family name of his owner or employer. But who was he? Where did he come from? And how did he come to die at the Battle of Bennington? There are only a few things we can say with certainty. We sometimes have to turn, as all historians do, to circumstantial evidence or to conjecture from what we know of the lives of other black Yankees, to use the title of William Pearson's 1988 study. We know, for example, that New Providence, the town from which Sip Ives was recruited, was settled by Baptists from Rhode Island in 1767. We know that New Providence had at least four enslaved persons, according to an early town history. When the Brunswick surgeon Julius Vosmus passed through Williamstown with other German prisoners after the Battle of Bennington, he noted in his journal that at most houses, one saw black slaves and many children. We don't know when Sip Ives arrived in New Providence or under what circumstances. We don't know his age or place of birth or who his parents were. We can assume, of course, that in the not very distant past, probably one, two, or three generations before, and in any case, since 1619, they had been brought to America from Africa, probably via the West Indies as slaves. After the middle of the 18th century, the majority of blacks in New England were native born. The mere fact of Sip Ives having had a last name suggests a degree of assimilation to white New England society. Sip Ives could have been enslaved or he could have been free and served a particular family or household as a household servant or laborer. He evidently owned no land himself, although there were free black farmers in Western Massachusetts who did. He would probably be invisible to history if he had not enlisted in Warner's regiment in the winter of 1777, which he could have done on his own or at the bidding of his master, a German officer traveling through the Berkshires that winter, remarked that a slave could take the field in his master's place. Hence, you never see a regiment in which there are not Negroes, and there are well-built, strong, husky fellows among them. Baroness Riedesel, wife of the German commander in Burgoyne's army, writing from Westfield in the wake of the surrender at Saratoga, corroborates this claim. The Negro can take the field in place of his master, so you do not see a regiment in which there is not a large number of blacks. So visible to those observers, so invisible, I suspect, to the minds of most New Englanders in our time. If enslaved, Sip Ives would have been promised his freedom if he enlisted, and if he was free, the monthly wages of 40 shillings or two pounds might have been enough as an inducement in themselves. It would not be surprising if, like most settlers in New Providence, Sip Ives had come from Rhode Island. There was a 
numerous White Ives, White Ives clan in Rhode Island. And Rhode Island had the largest percentage of blacks per capita in New England in the 1770s, roughly 6% of the population enslaved and free. Many blacks worked in the ports as laborers and artisans while others cultivated crops. One of those ports, Newport of course, was one of the centers of the North American slave trade. But it's also possible that Sip Ives came north from Connecticut, as so many did. William Ives had been one of the first settlers in New Haven in 1639, and the town of Wallingford in particular had many Iveses, some of whose members moved to Western Massachusetts in the 1760s and 70s. Amasa Ives of Adams fought at the Battle of Bennington, and John and David Ives both served that year in the Berkshire Militia under Colonel Simons. And if not from Connecticut, Sip Ives might have been part of the migration of settlers from Eastern to Western Massachusetts in the years following the end of the French and Indian War. There were 6,000 blacks in Massachusetts in 1776, 1,000 of them in the Western regions, 216 in the Berkshires. I haven't yet uncovered a birth or baptism record for Sip Ives, though one may exist. If any of you are experts in African-American genealogy, I invite you to search. We do know that Sip Ives was not the only black recruit from New Providence to enlist in the winter of 1777. Let's go back to Captain Angel's muster roll. It's the next slide, please. Simeon Grandison, who enlisted the same day as Sip, was also colored, as an early town history of situate Massachusetts terms him. He died there in 1835 at the age of 89, having been awarded a pension in 1818 on the basis of three full years of service. And if he was black, surely Charles Grandison, probably a brother, was black also. And perhaps Jonathan Grumman was black, though John Whiting, who was killed at Ticonderoga, was evidently white. It was Angel's job to enlist all the able-bodied men he could, whatever their color or status. Nor was he the only recruiter casting a wide net. By the year 1777, Blacks were permitted to serve in both the Continental Army and the Massachusetts militia. That represented a change in initial policy in both cases, driven by the need for men. But Blacks, like whites, had a choice to make. When the revolution came, as Gary Nash has written, next slide, please. African-Americans African -Americans reached a crossroads with one large contingent casting their lot with the British and the others hoping against hope that white Americans would honor their founding principles by making all people free and equal. That large contingent, more than 20,000 men who escaped to the British lines and who were promised freedom in return for allegiance to the crown were mostly slaves from Virginia or other Southern states. A lesser number of African-Americans, around 5,000 by most estimates, enslaved and free, fought as patriots. At the outset of the war, 1775, free black soldiers were fighting side by side with whites at Lexington, Concord, and Bunker Hill. But Congress soon forbade the enlistment of strollers, Negroes, and vagabonds, as the order put it. Some continental leaders feared that arming blacks could lead to slave insurrections. George Washington and other commanders soon changed their minds and Congress's mind as they faced the realities of making war with limited manpower and as they witnessed black courage in battle. 
Alexander Hamilton proposed to give slaves their freedom with their swords. He said that true policy and the dictates of humanity came together on this point, whether from expediency or from principle or both, as the war wore on, state and continental forces increasingly turned to blacks, free and enslaved, to fill their ranks. The result, as Jill Lepore has observed, was the most integrated U.S. Army until the Korean War. General Philip Schuyler, commander of the Northern Department, until he was replaced by Horatio Gates in mid-August 77, took a dim view of the black soldiers entering Continental forces. In July of that year, he wrote to General Heath, among others, complaining about the poor results of the year's recruiting push, saying that one-third of the few who have been sent are boys, aged men, and Negroes who disgrace our arms. Then he added, is it consistent with the sons of freedom to trust their all to be defended by slaves? Schuyler owned 30 slaves himself, and he appears to be more concerned here for the honor of his social or political class than about the paradox of sending slaves to defend his freedom. The irony, let's call it that, of a nation in which most blacks were enslaved using black soldiers to fight a war for liberty was not lost on everyone. When a fellow delegate to Congress from Virginia floated the idea of paying a bounty in Negroes to promote white enlistment, James Madison replied, would it not be as well to liberate and make soldiers at once of the blacks themselves? He continued, it would certainly be more consonant to the principles of liberty, which ought not to be lost sight of in a contest for liberty. As Abigail Adams reasoned to her husband in 1774, it always appeared a most iniquitous scheme to me to fight ourselves for what we are daily robbing and plundering from those who have as good a right to freedom as we have. You've probably all heard the next one from Samuel Johnson before, but to me it never gets old. How is it that we hear the loudest yelps for liberty from drivers of Negroes? One more from Harriet Beecher Stowe, looking back. They fought for a land that had enslaved them and whose laws, even in freedom, often are oppressed than protected. As we all know, the US government failed to put its declared principles into law in the matter of slavery, but some state governments did away with it, led by Vermont, which was not yet a state in its 1777 constitution. Massachusetts courts effectively retired slavery in 1781 in the face of legal challenges, such as that of Mumbat of Stockbridge, who cited the words of the 1780 Massachusetts Constitution in her suit, won her freedom, and became Elizabeth Freeman. Now back to Sip Ives. Although we know little of him before he enlists, once he joins Warner's Regiment of Green Mountain Boys, we can track his general movements. Let's have the flag of the Green Mountain Boys, please. I want to be careful with the use of that resonant term, Green Mountain Boys. It seems that it was first used around 1770 by Ethan Allen and his associates, including Seth Warner, as the name for the group who defended land titles granted by New Hampshire against claims to those same lands issued by the state of New York. The boys were an unofficial citizen militia, and in New York they were called the Bennington mob. 
while they contended as best they could in the courts of New York, which, as new scholarship informs us, wasn't very effectively. They also worked by intimidation, beatings, the destruction of property, and pamphleteering. The outbreak of hostilities in Massachusetts in 75 led the boys to turn their efforts from property disputes with New York to war against the British. <clears throat> when Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold led a group of Green Mountain boys and militiamen from Connecticut and Massachusetts in the surprise capture of Fort Ticonderoga, and Seth Warner took Crown Point, the boys found sudden fame and a new purpose. Congress authorized them as a regiment, and New York State held its nose and opened its purse to pay for them. Warner was elected commander. Sip Ives enlisted as part of a recruiting campaign in early 1777. His plans for the British invasion from Canada were taking shape in London. After Ticonderoga fell, Warner's regiment took heavy losses in the rear guard action at Hubberton. At least three black soldiers from New Hampshire Continental Regiments, Titus Wilson, Asa Purim, and Nicholas Vintram took part in that battle. And the previously mentioned Simeon Grandison of Warner's regiment also fought at Hubberton. And it's logical to think that Sip Ives was there too. With the pursuing British forces pausing in Castleton, General Schuyler ordered Warner to, put, to patrol the dangerous area to the north of Manchester and to deprive Burgoyne of cattle and other supplies that loyalists were forwarding to his army from the region. In the meantime, the newly self-proclaimed independent state of Vermont appealed to the state of New Hampshire for aid with the logic that if we collapse, you're next. And New Hampshire responded by persuading General John Stark to accept an independent command. Stark was popular and close to 1,500 men enlisted, although only half that number were in Manchester on August 7th, when Stark arrived to take command and confer with Warner and General Lincoln. Warner went with Stark and his New Hampshiremen to Bennington, leaving command of his own troops in the hands of Major Stafford. Safford. As soon as it became clear on the morning of August 14th that a British force was advancing on Bennington, Warner sent word to his regiment to come down immediately from Manchester as Stark dispatched part of his forces to reconnoiter. An alarm was also sent to militia commanders in Western Massachusetts, many of whose men arrived on the evening or the day of the battle. It took a day for Warner's men, many of whom were out on a scout to be assembled. They began to march on the morning of the 15th, Sip Ives, no doubt among them. <clears throat> it rained hard. The men marched through mud till midnight, camped a mile north of Bennington, spent the morning of the 16th drying out their equipment, passing through town to have breakfast and pick up ammunition. They were somewhere between Bennington and the battlefield, seven miles west of Bennington, when fighting began around 3 p.m. They stopped at Stark's camp to refresh themselves with a ration of a gill of rum, that's four ounces, and water, and then, now I, I know you want those troops to arrive at the battlefield, but I have to pause a moment. At the rum, Surgeon Vosmus noted that every American soldier carried a wooden flask with rum in it. In fact, he said, when captured, that many of the Patriots were drunk. Stark knew how essential rum was to Patriot morale and performance. 
he had asked the New Hampshire Committee of Safety to procure a supply of it for his troops, as there is none of that article in them parts where we are a-going. Stark later recorded that two hogsheads and a barrel of rum, more than 150 gallons, had been consumed by his troops, which they had much needed. And there was a black presence in that rum. If you think about where it came from, very likely distilled right here in New England from molasses produced by slave labor in the West Indies. The elixir of victory at the Battle of Bennington was literally the distillation of a global economy in which the enslavement of Africans and the wealth created by slave labor played an indispensable role. When Vermont's call for backup came into New Hampshire, it had seemed that there was no money for militiamen until a wealthy merchant from Portsmouth by the name of John Langdon, let's have a look at him, Give me John Langdon, please. Thank you. He was then serving as the Speaker of the New Hampshire Assembly, later as a US Senator. He volunteered $3,000 in cash, his silver plate and the proceeds from the sale of 70 hogsheads of Tobago rum that he had in his warehouses. Langdon had made most of his money in the West India trade. It's where more than 80% of New Hampshire's exports went. Although, unlike a number of his fellow New Englanders, he did not deal in slaves, only in products made with their labor. In 1770, the source of Langdon's 70 hogsheads of rum, the small Caribbean island of Tobago, let's have a look at it, had a population of 209 whites and 3,090 mostly enslaved Africans. It was the racial antipodes of New England. Though like Western Massachusetts and Vermont, it too was developed, developed by means of royal land grants in the 1760s and depended upon trade for its prosperity, exchanging sugar, molasses, and rum for New Hampshire lumber, manufactured goods, and provisions. The following images of the West Indian sugar industry on Antigua in the 1820s, but not much had changed, were created by an English overseer, who was also an artist, for the Ladies' Society for Promoting the Education of Negro Children. And next slide, please. There are whites at the right, uh, tasting the molasses, testing it, blacks at the left, doing the cooking. Next slide. Yeah, there in the foreground are some hogsheads for you, in case you haven't seen one lately. Those images aren't meant to convey how brutal working conditions were for those enslaved, but they do hint at it. You might wonder why the slaves of Tobago, <clears throat> who so outnumbered the whites, didn't revolt. But they did revolt in 1770, 1771 twice, 1774 and their revolts were violently suppressed. But I digress. The fact remains that New Hampshire troops fighting for American freedom at the Battle of Bennington were funded by wealth created in no small measure by black slave labor. Now, back to the battlefield and let's have a map. 
There you see the double envelopment that Stark and Warner conceived. By the time Warner's men were refreshing themselves at Stark's camp, Stark's forces had overwhelmed the combined German, British, Canadian, native, and loyalist forces entrenched against them. <clears throat> the battle seemed to be over. Men scattered and prisoners by the hundred were marched off to Bennington. Then the German reinforcements arrived, 656 of them under Colonel Brayman, with two six-pound cannons clearing the way with canister shot. <clears throat> Soon the Americans were retreating, disorganized and outnumbered. They made a stand about a mile west of the first battle. Let's let Private Thomas Mellon tell the story, as he did to James Davy Butler in 1848, when Mellon was a very lively 92. He's just run in to Brayman's column. We skirmishers, skirmishers ran back till we met a large body of Stark's men and then faced about, but the enemy outflanked us. At that moment, a major on a black horse, this was Major John Rand of Worcester, Mass, ran behind us shouting, fight on boys, reinforcements close by. In five minutes, we saw Seth Warner's men hurrying to help us. One half of them attacked each flank of the enemy and beat back those who were just closing around us. Stark's men now took heart and stood their ground. Colonel Warner, let's have a look at him. <clears throat> at the Bennington Monument. Other accounts, including General Stark's, corroborate this picture of the critical arrival of Warner's men. It was during this desperate fighting, the hottest of the day by many accounts, the fighting that sealed the Patriot victory, that Sip Ives is most likely to have been mortally wounded. He's listed as having, been, having died on the 17th, the day after the battle. Many wounded men remained on the battlefield all night long. It's likely that Ives was buried there on the battlefield on the 17th. Surgeon Vosmus recorded that at Stockbridge, nine days after the battle, 1,000 riflemen came through here today who together with many savages and blacks were going to General Gates's army. Those men were part of the surge of militia on their way to put a stop to Burgoyne's advance in the wake of the victory at Bennington. More than 17,000 Americans would force Burgoyne's surrender at Saratoga by mid-October. At least 500 of them were of African descent, according to Park historian Eric Schnitzer, author of a new book on the Saratoga campaign, incidentally. Burgoyne's defeat and the resulting alliance with France the following year were made possible by the Patriot victory at Bennington, which turned on the impact of Warner's troops as they entered the fray and turned the enemy's flanks. I want to conclude by looking at a mural by Leroy Williams that has been on view at the Bennington Museum since being painted in 1938 under the auspices of the WPA's Federal Art Projects. The scene is the village of Bennington. There are five mounted figures. On the left in green coats are Vermont's, Vermont's colonels Warner and Herrick. Then raising an arm in the center background is one of the Stockbridge Indians who were allied at the Patriots, though they weren't really there here serving as a guard, then General Stark with saber aloft, and lastly, in the shadows, but at the same height and on the same scale of the, of the other officers, is a splendidly attired black youth 
leading tied up Tories as prisoners. Let's have a detail. Leroy Williams had several secondary sources available for this figure, including William Nell's 1855 Colored Patriots of the American Revolution. There we read that it was the request of Mrs. Moses Robinson, wife of the Bennington militia colonel, that her Negro man lead the prisoners on her mare. That would account for the fine clothes befitting a servant or slave in a wealthy household. We know that the Robinsons, according to a recent biography, did not hold slaves, although some of their neighbors did. The story about Mrs. Robinson, which Nell received from a Vermont historian, seems a little fanciful, though two other 19th century secondhand accounts also mention a Negro or Negroes leading Tory prisoners. We also have a firsthand account that Lion Miles brought to my attention. Let's have a look at it. And a detail, please. That's a page from the 1832 pension application of David Nichols of Holden, Massachusetts, in which he says that after scouting duties, he arrived in Bennington the day after the battle and assisted in guarding the prisoners, and that while there, he saw 60 Tories who had been taken, tied together in pairs and led away by a Negro. So William's painting of the black youth is historically accurate, at least in some respects, though accurate, of course, is not really the right word for a work of art. None of the 19th century accounts says explicitly what is made by having a Negro lead the procession of Tory prisoners. But I take it to be a ritual humiliation designed to show the Tories and all comers that the political order has been turned upside down. They are the ones being led in a coffle now. I also think that the dashing, jubilant figure of the young black man astride his horse, and let's have, thank you, is claiming a share in the day's triumph and looking forward to the triumph of freedom, perhaps his own freedom, in America in time to come. In the painting, if we think about it, the black youth's elevation is only temporary. He's a mock king whose masters will depose him when the pageant is over. But Williams captures the moment when the youth is exulting in his own power, which is expressed in his jaunty posture, the firm grip of his left hand on the rope, and by his massive crown-like tricorn. Leroy Williams also painted Lemuel Haynes, the biracial Vermont preacher who settled in Rutland and who had fought in the Continental Forces. Williams was a white artist from Vermont in the 1930s, to whom black lives evidently mattered. The Battle of Bennington exists not only in some imagined historical past, but in the words, images, and ceremonies by which we remember it in our own time. Here in Bennington, we just commemorated the battle for the 243rd consecutive year. This year's ceremony was dedicated to essential workers. A black ER nurse from Bennington named Patricia Johnson, was one of the speakers. <clears throat> Let's have a look. And yes, those are the Green Mountains in the background. Don't you wish you were here? Patricia spoke about her work as a nurse, but she also spoke about Sip Ives, 
Her son Zion was in the audience and asked to be taken to the battlefield to see where Ives and the other patriots had fought. Patricia sent me this picture. Let's have a look. There he is. And one final slide. And I'm happy to take questions or respond to comments. Thanks. All right, thank you so much for that great talk. I'm going to turn it over to Mary now and she is going to lead our Q&A session. So remember, if you have a question, put it into the chat. Thank you. I don't see any questions yet, but I see a lot of, wow, that was amazing and thank you so much. So I would like to say thank you as well. I thought that was really wonderful. I learned a lot. Well, so did I, I must say. And uh, what you've really heard is my own trajectory from ignorance to some knowledge and still in search of more. Yeah, it's always interesting when you learn new tidbits and you kind of fall down a giant rabbit hole. And I usually kind of, when I stumble upon documents that say uh, they like supplemented a slave to go fight for them in the Continental Army because they could, I always wondered what the percentage of was that they were sent out to do. Yeah, one thing I'll mention is you heard me cite uh, a man named Lion Miles. I don't know if he's known to any of you. He's kind of legendary, legendary among his friends and associates and librarians around the country. Uh, remarkable scholar who hasn't published much although he has published some things, but uh, who knows a great deal and has shared a great deal with me about the Battle of Bennington. I depended on his scholarship and we've presented a talk together uh, at the Bennington Museum. He's elderly, he's 87 and not in the best of health. I have some questions coming in, here we go. Uh, Judith would like to ask, what happened to the state representative? Did she decide to remain in government? Uh, no, she didn't. Uh, she did remain in Bennington for the last couple of years, although she is now bur moving to Burlington. I believe she has a job in a, in a social service agency or in fact, a racial justice uh, nonprofit in Burlington. Ed asks, were concerns of recruiting black soldiers leading to slave revolts voiced as much in the Northern colonies as in the Southern colonies? Uh, I don't have a definite answer. Um, I doubt it. Although there was more slavery in the North than you might think uh, than we Northerners <laughs> typically uh, learn about or think about, um, especially in Rhode Island and uh, the Connecticut ports, Portsmouth, mostly along the coast. Um, but there just weren't the numbers uh, that there were in the South. Nor was the regime for New England enslaved blacks uh, uh, based on the plantation system. More were household servants or 
often living in the same house and eating at the same table, albeit at the foot of it with their white masters. And when they gathered together, as they did, insert, clustered together in certain communities, they maintained uh, even some African elements in their social lives and traditions. You can read about that in Black Yankees. That's an informative book. Another book I'll mention is just a, a tremendous work of social history, The Negro in Colonial New England by Lorenzo Green. You know, that's just an exemplary work. That was 1942, but it's uh, still pretty thrilling to read. Awesome. Uh, there is no name attached to this question, so I apologize for not giving you any credit. What happened to Warner's Raps and Stark's Militia after the battle? Uh, to Warner's, I didn't. It says Raps. Mm, troops. Maybe. Uh, <clears throat> they. What happened to Stark's militia after the battle? <laughs> um, Stark was deployed north of uh, Saratoga to cut off Burgoyne's potential retreat. His men had signed up um, in the middle of July and come the middle of September, their two months enlistment were up. And so many of them returned home to try to um, harvest their crops. At the same time, new New Hampshire militiamen took their places. Uh, there's a place north of Saratoga called Stark's Knob where he positioned himself so that Burgoyne couldn't escape to the north. Um, where did Warner go? To Saratoga. In fact, uh, Warner, it is said by his first biographer, uh, did not take off his boots for 16 days because he was that uh, active as a soldier and commander. He died a few years later, uh, didn't recover from all the hard use he had given his body in the war. Uh, do you want to talk about uh, the American Battlefield Trust purchasing more of the land for the Battle of Bennington to expand it? Well, you know, we Vermonters, um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll preface it by saying we, uh, we of Bennington, justifiably, I suppose, uh, take a ribbing anyway from our New York colleagues for claiming the Battle of Bennington uh, fought on New York soil. Um, the battlefield is a couple of miles inside the line. And although Bennington was the objective, specifically the Continental Storehouse here, uh, bombs, uh, the British troops never arrived. Uh, but the battlefield itself is a New York State historic site park. Um, created in 1927 and well worth a visit. Um, there's a hilltop, Hessian Hill, where the, well, you saw, that's where that picture of Zion was taken. And you saw some breastworks that had been erected there, logs. Uh, but down in the flats, where most of the Germans surrendered after a final attempt at breaking out, um, 
a piece of land has recently been acquired along the Willemsack River, extending uh, the territory of the battlefield. I haven't walked it yet, the purchase is that new, but uh, we now, we, New York, uh, owns the, the Tory Fort, the hilltop, the bridge position, and now the surrender fields. And you can see by my enumerating those various sites, one of the flaws in the German strategy. They dispersed their troops and they got picked off uh, place by place. Uh, Maura asks, you mentioned that Sip Ives named, was named after a derivative of Scipio Africanus, a Roman name. Was there a particular significance for black and or slaves being named for famous Romans? Well, I have, I'm, that's a good question, and I'd like to know uh, a definitive answer because I've read several. Um, I've read that it was done um, in a kind of jest uh, by the white uh, masters uh, to name the low with names of the high. I've also read that these were, after all, military heroes of the Roman Republic that blacks were very happy to have as their names. Um, the name Scipio figures in James Fenimore Cooper's novel, The Rover, where it's the prior explanation uh, that is a kind of bitter jest at the expense of the black person that is advanced, but uh, the jury is out. There is a book on black revolutionary era nomenclature, by the way, if anyone is curious. Um, oh, uh oh, it updated, hold on, I gotta go back up. The uh, name Jason of that asked. book, what is the name of that book? Um, hmm. It's not one I have. It's in the Williams College Library, fortunately. Uh, I think if you Google um, 18th century Black or African American names, uh, you might find it. It was published in, I'm going to say, the 60s. I have all of these questions coming in and my chat keeps moving. Bear with me for just a second. Uh, Jason asks, how many enslaved people served in the Battle of Bennington? Do you know? It, it's very difficult to determine the status of black soldiers. Um, and it is especially in the continental forces that they did serve. Um, whether from New Hampshire or otherwise. And Bennington was mostly a militia battle. It was only Warner's regiment of, which was cut up at Hubberton with only 100 or 130 surviving to fight. Um, and I know of only those three or four I enumerated, although it's so difficult to see color in names in the past without visual information. We depend upon uh, references in the pension files if they're there and sometimes in the town histories if we can follow someone that far. Those 19th century town histories will let us know. 
Um, so I don't have a figure. It would be perhaps only a handful. And I didn't mention, but certainly at Hubbardton, uh, there was a black fifer, but he was fighting for the British. The British and later the Germans, thanks to a gift of slaves by Benedict Arnold, uh, replaced their own drummers and fifers with black American uh, Americans so that those positions could be freed up for soldiery. That is, the Germans could carry a musket instead of drumsticks. Uh, for any folks looking for book selections, I see that a couple of people have dropped different books in the chat if you want to take a look at that for the next couple minutes. I will end with my last question, which has become my favorite now to ask. If you could have dinner with anybody at Francis Tavern, assuming that you were actually at Francis Tavern giving this lecture, who would you eat with and dine with and drink with and why? Uh, I like putting everybody on the spot with this one. Well, There's no pressure, but I, I'm going to judge your answer. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, well, I'm assuming that, uh, of course, I would really like to talk to Sip Ives. I'm so curious about him. After all, you know, I've got a pretty good impression of General Stark and Seth Warner, but uh, to fill in what is so uh, evanescent in the historical record, so fragmentary, with a living person, um, I would uh, stake him to a glass of rum. I think that's fair. That's a good choice. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you, Mary, for moderating. And thank you, Phil, for your answers and your really, really interesting lecture. Uh, and thank you to all of you for joining us this evening and for spending your time with us virtually at Francis Tavern Museum. Thank you to those of you who have donated to the museum. If you're enjoying our virtual programs, please feel free to visit our website, make a donation. These donations help us keep providing all this programming while we're closed and they'll help us when we reopen, which will hopefully be soon. Um, and if you really enjoy our events, you can visit our website again to check out our calendar. We're updated now through September, but we're always adding things and you can join our mailing list to make sure that you get all of the up-to-date information on what's going on at Francis Tavern Museum. Uh, so once again, thank you for being with us tonight and hopefully we will see you again soon. Thanks for the wonderful comments that people have been making. I appreciate it. All right. Good night, everyone. Have a great rest of your day and see you soon. Bye-bye.